Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome, everybody, uh, to the main course. This is a great, great show. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, Bristol Bay, our nation's last great wild salmon fishery, and it's under threat. So in a few minutes, we're going to bring on uh, Christopher Nicholson, Michael Dimon, Elizabeth Dubofsky, and Chef Corwin Cave. I'm Patrick Martins. Uh, We're engineered by Jack Inslee. and. I mean, I'm sure this is on everybody's mind. I mean, Ann and I were watching the news today, and Mitt Romney, who's probably going to be the Republican candidate, came out with one of the most powerful, sustainable food movement policies, I guess. And they they just premiered it. They actually interrupted their story. I mean, this policy, it involves, this is just, I've only had a few minutes to look it over, but a, a snack tax. Yep. You know, um, he's going to hold fast food franchises to higher tax brackets because, you know, they contribute to the obesity epidemic. Um, he's talking about tax subsidies for small farms. And uh, uh, I believe he came out against GMOs also. Yeah, exactly. He took a yeah. stand against GMOs and says until we find more out, um, you know, we can't really move forward with genetically, you know, basically it's a stance against Monsanto. I mean, and I didn't really get to read this part, but even hinted, I think, at legalization of marijuana well, and I mean, basically an overhaul of the entire U.S. drug policy. He, he did. He mentioned the war on drugs, which was a first for a Republican in this in this race. This is pretty shocking. Yeah. Crazy morning. I mean, what a crazy morning. And I mean, you know, we'd always not tried to take a political stance on this network. We always said whichever party proposes the most sustainable policies would be our party. Uh, You know, anyway, the challenge is uh, definitely been put to the Democrats to match this. So let's see if he backs it up. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So um, anyway, let's uh, take a break and uh, we'll come right back with uh, talk about uh, wild fish gone by pondering the years you said that you were by my side you made me believe we had love beyond compare now I can see you never cared Uh, are we back, Jack? Yeah. It's April Fool's Day. That None of the yeah. stuff we just said is true at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we did, all right. We did, well, we now did we're have gonna, a few people retweeting I will, that, that false I will say there is uh, one thing that we will talk about later is this, uh, this Michigan ban will eliminate all heritage breeds and destroy thousands of small-scale farms. Uh, that is actually a true story, but uh, because we just came off the... Uh, you know, the April Fool's joke, uh, you know, we'll save that towards the end. But we have a great studio. I mean, we've never had such a, a high-powered fish panel. Um, like I say, we have Christopher Nicholson, uh, who is a, a fisherman. Michael Dimon, who is, uh, you know, runs one of the great uh, distributor uh, organizations for sustainably raised fish. Elizabeth Duvowski, uh Am I pronouncing that right? Yep. And uh, what is your title? I work uh, for Trout Unlimited, a cold water fisheries conservation group, and I run their Why Wild program. All right. And uh, we have Chef Corwin Cave of uh, the Fatty Crab Empire. Uh, Welcome, Corwin. (laughs) Thank you. So, um, Michael, I'll start with you. Uh, Why are we here today? Um, You know, what is this political issue that's such a hotbed? Bristol Bay, as, as you know, Patrick, is the world's the site of the world's greatest salmon run mm-hmm. where over 40 million sockeye salmon come back every year and uh there's a tremendous threat by a conglomerate of mining companies international companies who want to build a gigantic open pit in fact the world's largest open pit mine right in the headwaters of bristol bay 
Right, and uh, these uh, there are two in particular. One of these companies' name is Anglo American, and the other is Northern Dynasty. Right. The two partners. One is a UK company, uh, and one is actually a Canadian company, and uh, they've they are uh, they're sitting on a uh, a proposal, and they're been moving forward rather rapidly through the process of getting approved to mine this place hmm. and jeopardize one of the great wonders of the world. Wow. And, um, I mean, Elizabeth, the, this this issue has really brought together an unprecedented coalition of groups, right? It has. I mean, I, I think for one of the first times ever, you've got commercial salmon fishermen, sport fishermen, subsistence users, native tribes, jewelers, chefs, retailers, you name it. Everyone who values wild salmon um, has come together behind the protection of Bristol Bay and you know, I think fishermen especially would appreciate having commercial and sport fishermen come together behind a common goal and a common cause is just you don't see it anymore um, or ever. And, you know, I think people joke sometimes that they want to, you know, let's beat the pebble mine and get back to fighting over who gets whose fish and get to the usual fish wars. So it's it's really unusual to have this kind of partnership. Now, can you tell us a little bit about, like, where these mines are? Like, what exactly, where, where would this be exactly, and what would it look like? And mm-hmm. then we'll ask Chris to ha- tell us the effect that'll have on the actual fish. Yeah, well, so a lot of our information to date is based on, um, you know, some of the reports and the, the preliminary proposals that the Pebble Partnership has released. I mean, we really don't have an exact sense for what this is going to look like and entail. But based on what we know, um, as Michael mentioned, I mean, we are tar- talking about the largest open pit mine in North America. It would be primarily a gold and copper mine. Um, and this deposit, the Pebble Deposit, um, would be right at the headwaters of the Quijac and the Nushigak Rivers, which are the largest salmon-producing rivers in Bristol Bay. And Bristol Bay is the largest salmon-producing watershed left in the world. So it's just the most critical salmon habitat left on the planet um, is sort of the epicenter of this debate. Given the nature of uh, copper mines, you know, you're looking at a sulfide deposit. And sulfide deposits typically result in sulfuric acid, and that's acid mine drainage. Um, I mean, it's you just go to Colorado and you can see what acid mine drainage does to local streams and just the aquatic ecosystem. Um, so the, the type of the mine is a real concern to us and, you know, the location, just given the sensitivity of the salmon habitat. Um, it's also in a very seismically active zone. And mm-hmm. so if you are building, you know, a mine of this size and scale in a seismically active zone, I, th- I think we can count on accidents. It's not... Would an accident happen? I think it's just a matter of when an accident or environmental disaster would happen. Um, and because this mine would be so large, and you know, we're looking at over 10 billion tons of ore would be extracted from the earth to pull out the gold and the copper and the other minerals. Those 10 billion tons of waste rock, they've got to go somewhere. Um, and Pebble is the Pebble Partnership's proposing keeping that waste rock on site in the headwaters of Bristol Bay forever, essentially. I mean, just it's cost prohibitive to transport that waste rock anywhere. It's a very remote place. You really, you can't get it out of the region. So, you know, where does all that waste rock go? It stays, you know, behind tailings dams um, on site forever. And these tailings dams would be the largest earthen dams in the world. I mean, this is really, this the size of this mine is not insignificant. It's really one of the largest, you know, mining projects we've ever seen. And, you know, I think for us and this coalition trying to fight the pebble mine, it's, you know, I I don't think we have any confidence in Alaska's permitting system and even federally to be able to deal with a project like this and the potential environmental risks that would come with it. So, Christopher, I ask you before we get to the fish, what is their response? I mean, what would Anglo-American and Northern Dynasty, if they had a representative here today, what would their argument be? That that there'll never be a mess up or that you're exaggerating? I mean, just to play devil's advocate, what is their PR campaign? Really important perspective. I think um, uh, a couple of the overarching uh, uh, positions that um, um, Anglo-American and NDM might uh, propose would be that we don't uh, we don't know what the effects might be, um, and that the opponents of the mine are talking about worst case scenarios. 
that's uh, one uh, argument they might make. Another one might be that um, you know, with with new uh, clean mining technology, it's a, a phrase I'm making up right now. We have the ability. <laughs> we, as a mining company, have the ability to uh, to you know protect uh, this you know 70 square mile area in a way that no one's ever done it before, um, and that you know the this we can. Um, that mining and fish can live, um, in, they can cohabit. This this isn't a, an if or, or a one or the other sort of a choice. I think mm-hmm. those are the three arguments. Very interesting. So, uh, well, tell us briefly before we get more into, uh, you know, the Pebble Mine and, uh, you know, Bristol Bay. I mean, tell us about salmon's life cycle and uh, salmon's healthy habitat. I mean, you are a fisherman. You go out, what, June, July, August every year, more or less. Um, mostly June, July. It's a pretty, pretty uh, hot and heavy uh, season for the um, one of the species of salmon that I fish for, sockeye salmon. Um, the brief uh, snapshot of the life cycle uh, of the life cycle. Pardon me. Um, Ten dollar word. Uh, salmon are an anadromous fish. That means they go from um, freshwater to saltwater, and the salmon that uh, spawn out of Bristol Bay. They're born in these uh, freshwater streams, uh, the headwaters where the mine would be located. And then after a year or two years, they migrate out uh, to deep water. And they, they have maybe uh, as little as a four or five hundred uh, mile migration cycle to maybe up to a thousand or twelve hundred mile um, migration cycle where they spend, they travel four hundred to twelve hundred miles in salt water and they stay at, uh, in salt water for a year up to three or four years and then at some mystical magical point they turn their noses around and they head back to the freshwater streams where they were born so they're they're closely related they have this life that revolves around the freshwater um uh, that the mine would be uh, in the midst of now tell us again that mine would be in what part of that cycle it's it would be at their birth and at their um spawning and then uh, their mm. death because they they pass away right after they uh they spawn so they're it's for birth um of the fish and their their first year of life and then the end of their life cycle mm. um, takes place where the new fish are spawned in the freshwater well very interesting i mean we have a, a chef here he's the end of the the kind of marketing line here i mean this is fascinating i mean what uh vehicles do you guys have to know about these things i mean is this stuff talked about amongst the best chefs yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely you know salmon has been a has been a, a big topic for a long time. I think with chefs and you know the the quality of product that you can get uh, at a price point that you could afford to serve it at um, for the most part is very low. Uh, farm salmon is really almost all that exists uh, when it comes to. Um, you know your fish purveyors for the most part, unless you're you're willing to pay a very uh, hefty price tag for it. Um, and I think nowadays the consumer is a little more educated, um, and our guests are a little more educated that they're willing to pay a little more for something like uh, a wild sockeye salmon. And you know that's that's a movement that you know we're obviously all in the midst of, and you know we're sitting here talking about and and, and helping create. And I mean for me that's 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 very exciting because you know touching a you know, a farmed, uh, pellet-fed salmon, you know, makes my skin itch, literally. Uh, so, you know, there's something wrong with that. Uh, you don't, you don't want to be serving that to your customers. And, um, you know, it definitely, you know, learning about, you know, this news, which is, you know, this is not the kind of thing that will come directly down the pipeline. This is the kind of thing you have to look for and uh, educate yourself about. Um, but knowing it um, and then being able to then, you know, talk amongst uh, other chefs and, 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 and get the uh, get the uh, the coconut telegraph moving, mm-hmm. um, you know, can definitely can definitely help. And, you know, chefs are the kind of guys that will, you know, kind of people that will really get behind a movement like this because, you know, this protects what we're so passionate about. Um, you know, when you see that beautiful... Um, you know, just super red salmon. I mean, there's just, there's no feeling like that, you know, putting up against some pale, you know, orangey dyed, you know, filet. It's a, it's a, it's a different experience. It's night and day. Well, uh, Michael, I mean, you work uh, directly with chefs by selling to them. So, I mean, is more purchases or paying a higher price going to have any effect on this issue at hand? I mean, what's the, the game here? What, what Seat of Table does is we work with fishermen like Christopher and his family. And we try to get their catch directly from where it lands 
to chefs all over the country. And because we've kind of come up with a little different distribution system by directly connecting the fisherman with the chef, we can do it at cost points that are not tremendously higher than things like farm salmon. And when you compare a farm salmon, like you said, to a beautiful red sockeye from Bristol Bay, it's like two different animals from two different worlds. It's just a different, just a different thing. So we, we work with that hard and try to do that. So, um, and tell us, Elizabeth, I mean, what is the, the battle here? I mean, how can uh, listeners, I mean, what can we do about this? What are your strategies and tactics? You talk about this unprecedented coalition. Mm-hmm. How, what are they doing? Yeah, well, you know, over the last few years, it's really been just building this coalition and building that army of support. And, you know, a lot of my work has been reaching out to the food community and chefs like Corey and others. And it's been really um, exciting and encouraging to see that people who eat salmon and value wild salmon as a healthy and delicious food choice they want to take action. I mean, that's everyone asks, like, what can I do? And usually the first thing I tell people is eat Bristol Bay salmon to help save Bristol Bay, you know, by putting our dollars in the fishery and supporting fishermen like Christopher and the thousands of other fishermen in Bristol Bay. I mean, that's a very direct way of connecting to Bristol Bay and, you know, voting with your fork and your dollars for a renewable industry and a sustainable food source that that you want to see protected and but that's not going to stop the mines or will it it's you know it's it won't by itself unfortunately i wish eating salmon it was that simple um but that's why you know we're at a really critical point right now this diverse coalition we have all gone to the environmental protection agency and the obama administration and we are asking the epa to weigh in on this issue and It's really with the leadership of Bristol Bay's native community um, that this has all come to be. And about a year or so ago, Bristol Bay native uh, tribes and corporations went to the EPA and said, you know, with your authority under the Clean Water Act and section, there's a special section in the Clean Water Act called Section 404C, the EPA has the authority to block um, a permit that the Pebble Partnership would need to move forward. And this permit has to do with dredge and fill activity. And if the EPA finds that the dredge and fill activity would have uh, negative impacts on the water, on local aquatic species, on fisheries, on recreation areas, the EPA can say, no, these areas, these waters are off limits. And that that is really where we're at. I mean, that's what we're waiting to see, you know, what the EPA decides to do, what the Obama administration decides to do. I mean, at the end of the day, it really comes down to Obama, and that's who we're looking to. And, you know, so as far as what people can do, the second thing you can do is, you know, join the petition that we just started last week. Um, you can go to org and join this national petition. And I just think we all... As Americans, as people who eat wild salmon and value salmon, I mean, we've all got to, you know, weigh in on this and and be sure that this this mine doesn't doesn't happen. Poor Obama's got so much to worry about, so much to do, so little time. Uh, we're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to come right back and, and and keep hammering into this issue. It's a very important issue. Thanks so much for coming in, everyone. We'll be right back. Just the same He is hurting just the same 
first ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Brian Kenny, my hero. Um, we are having a, a very interesting show. So we have a, a couple of guests. Uh, Anne is, is in the studio, and she had a really interesting question. We're talking about, by the way, we're talking about uh, Bristol Bay, uh, our nation's last great wild salmon fishery, which is under threat by two foreign mining companies. Uh, an unprecedented group of uh, people have come together to try to preserve this place and, and stop this mining organization from hurting these fish. And, you know, we, I, I'm reading here in the outline, I mean, small traces of copper have been known to negatively affect fish. And here, you know, there's going to be a massive mine. I mean, no one knows the effect. And of course, financial people with putting money first will be like, well, let's do it all and then see. Um, but then, of course, we know that that's too late. So let's talk about concrete changes. Uh, Christopher, you've been fishing that part of the world for how long now? And have you seen any changes uh, along those years? Uh, I've been fishing for, I guess this will be my 25th uh, season this summer. So a bit of time. Um, kind of a, my family's been living in and around Bristol Bay for a couple of hundred years. And they've been fishing for several generations. Um, and one of our guests here uh, asked uh, if over the my time fishing, if I've seen many changes in the fishery. It's um, so far there have been no uh, major uh, mine encroachments during the time I've fished there, but it has been interesting to see some of the. And I say this from a personal perspective, but uh, the changes that uh, warming temperatures have brought to the times when the fish arrive, um, to the times when our heaviest and lightest catches are. It's uh, just global temperatures have been interesting in the, the temperature of the water and its effect on spawning cycles. But that's from a, a subjective point of view. Interesting. So you have seen changes. I mean, is it? Uh, what do you say to people that are like, oh, this is just an up and down situation? I mean, uh, are you convinced that things are going for the worst? Because a couple of years ago, I heard it was the worst salmon run ever or something. Two, three years ago, and then last year was fine. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, I Can think, you distill uh, through some of the political messaging that goes on here? Yeah, it's a um, Bristol Bay, Alaska is a wild fishery. So um, humans like me who are fishing it, I'm sure we have all kinds of ideas about uh, what's happening. I didn't catch as many fish as I did last year. I caught triple the fish this year I did the year before. So I'll, uh, I'll admit that I have... Uh, uh, fishermen's opinions about uh, some of these things but it has been interesting um, uh, to see um, what happens when the temperature changes it, it does affect uh, the does affect when the fish come and it affects when they don't come and if I may um, I mean I think that's one of the great things about salmon is that just because of their genetics and the way you have salmon stocks, you know, you have these different levels of genetic diversity. And Bristol Bay is one of the last places where we have what, you know, they call it the portfolio effect. And because you have all this pristine, untouched salmon habitat, you know, you've got all these different gene pools. And so if you destroy a certain gene pool, you know, on years when some stocks are struggling because of warmer water temperatures or different ocean conditions, you know, other gene stocks might do better. And so you need to maintain that genetic diversity. And, you know, that's one of the concerns we have is, you know, if you wipe out this, the salmon stocks that are in the Quijac and the Nushigak, you know, those might be the genes that will thrive in a warming climate and warming oceans. I mean, we just don't know. And so it's just all the more reason to protect protect that genetic diversity and integrity. And, and that's what we haven't done elsewhere in the U.S., which is why our salmon fisheries, you know, in, in California and, and elsewhere are, are struggling. So, um, of course, you know, there'll be certain people that make an economic argument that, or, you know, kind of survival of the fittest. Who cares? If the salmon can't survive, they should die. But in the other end of that argument is an economic argument, you know, and, and salmon does fund many 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 mm-hmm. different people so there is an ar- ar- economic argument 
in terms of saving them as well, not just valuing how much money that mine could could uh, you know be worth. So, what is uh, maybe Michael? We'll start with you, and we'll go around. I mean, could we touch upon the importance of fisheries and the significance of salmon uh, in the in the region and in the world? In certainly in Bristol Bay, Alaska, it is the economic driver. It's what happens every year. It's a uh, it's it is the industry that feeds the people that live there for the year, and uh, it's it's it is the most important thing there. Uh, How the, many people? I mean, more or less. Let's put it uh, numbers. You're, you know, we've calculated that it's around twelve thousand people are employed each summer in some way by the salmon fishery, and that includes both the commercial fishery as well as the sport fishery, because you also have a lot of lodges and sport fishing guides and. And others. So you're talking about twelve thousand people each summer who who make their their living from Bristol Bay, and you know for the local communities that's one of the primary sources of income. So for them, this is this is everything. This is their time to to make their salary. And how is a commercial fishery defined? I mean, talk, talk about like, are you considered a commercial fishery? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And how many commercial fisheries are there? And then, then are there people that are below that that just uh, fish salmon to feed their own and you yep, know yep um in bristol bay i guess there are there are three uh, fishermen that the um, bay supports there's a, a really important sport fishing um uh, community which uh, in some respects elizabeth uh, uh, represents there's a, a commercial uh, fishing uh, community um and then there's a uh, subsistence fishing community and those three communities um uh rely on folks like Elizabeth who represent the sport fishing uh, community to bring them together because uh, subsistence fishermen and commercial fishermen are a ragtag a ragtag bunch <laughs> it's really wonderful to have the uh, a coalition of people that have been organized by someone you might consider as a, a sport fishing interest but it's really bringing together fishermen from those three areas very very interesting so there are about uh, 1200 commercial fishing boats in Bristol Bay is that with the number you had... Uh, yep. Yeah, there are around 1,200 um, boats that'll be in the bay, and you figure you've got three to four crew on each of those boats. So you've mm-hmm. got the captain and, and then the crew. Vessels, by the way. And those, yeah, those are the drift. So you have um, drift gillnetters, and you also have set gillnetters, such as Christopher and, and his family. So within, you know, you've got drifters and set netters fishing for salmon. So, I mean, you just... It, the salmon really support a diversity of, of fisheries out there. Um, and do and they fight? And are there uh, yeah. arguments against what the proper quotas should be? I guess that's one great um, kind of uh, one of the great reasons for the sustainability of the fishery in Bristol Bay is that all fishermen are beholden to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game and the biologists who manage the system. There's We're, we're not allowed as sport fishermen, commercial fishermen, or subsistence fishermen, we're never allowed to fish for a quota of any kind. It's only, uh, we're only allowed fishing times, we're only allowed fishing rights based on um, numbers of fish that the Alaska Department of Fishing Game um, has established, have gotten past a certain point in the river system, um, uh, that are safely uh, ready to spawn. So we, we have... Um, I guess the the importance of the management of the fish is the thing that governs the sustainability of the fishermen, of the fishery, pardon me. Very interesting. And how do they count? Is there just a guy underwater with a they, you know, face mask? We all laugh, but it's true. They You go out to some of the rivers and uh, streams upstream of Bristol Bay and you fishing the Department of Fishing Game, they've got guys out there all summer long with you know a little counter. And they they click that counter every time a salmon goes by and, you know, pull those numbers together each week to help decide, you know, abundance-based management. They really base their management on how many adult salmon are getting upstream just to because you have to reach that critical threshold to ensure that you have enough adults spawning to have healthy numbers in the years to come. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot of people power. I mean, that's, you know, probably another... You have a lot of biologists who rely on on that. For sure. And now uh, I've learned this is like a mantra of the station. You eat fresh Alaskan salmon during the year, um, during uh, July and August and September, and then you eat frozen Alaska salmon the rest of the year, 
right? It's um, it's okay to eat frozen salmon. So uh, what is the most valuable salmon for you to catch and for you, Michael, to sell? Uh, what do you always wish you had the most of? Because most of it is sockeye, right? Yes, sir. Yep. But then there are four other types. Is that right? Yep. I guess the two most important species, and I'd, I'd like to hear Corey and Michael's perspective on it, but uh, the I guess the two most important species for uh, commercial sale uh, for what uh, chefs and consumers are looking for are sockeye salmon and Chinook salmon. Um, and they're this, they're sockeye have the that beautiful crimson flesh, and Chinook um, are very rich. They're very um, um, fat, uh, rich fish. The, uh, the Chinook is also called the king salmon, and they are the largest of the five dominant salmon species, mm-hmm. and they are the most prized by chefs. They are uh, they're beautiful, fatty, uh, uh, wonderful uh, fish to eat. And they're kind of the, the top of the food chain. Top of the food chain. Is that, uh, now I know you're on Chopped, uh, and I know you cooked the salmon on Chopped. You were given the salmon as a yeah. secret ingredient. Uh, yeah, what gave, kind of salmon was it, and what did you do with it? Well, they gave me they gave me sockeye, uh, and, uh, which was great because it was, you know, a nice, a nice smaller piece of salmon. And uh, uh, it, was, it was weird. I had, um, it aired, I think it aired about three weeks ago. I got sockeye and frisee, um, a six-pack of beer. Oh, brother. Yeah, well, you know, of course. And What uh, kind of beer did they give you? <laughs> uh, it was an amber ale. <laughs> uh, and then they gave me a, a, a pint container of Catola squash, which are uh, these weird little Indian gourds uh, hmm. that are extremely bitter and difficult to cook. Oh, brother. So, yeah. Are you even supposed to be able to eat gourds? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it took a little cooking. but um, I always viewed them as household uh, decorations yeah. more than food. <laughs> you know, but it was like, it was that thing, you know, it's like opening the basket and seeing this gorgeous piece of fish. Uh, you know, I just cut a piece of it and you know s- seared it beautifully. Put uh, some crispy skin on it, butter basted it, and a little turmeric, and that was it. I mean, you don't have to do anything to this fish; it's gorgeous. So, you know, it's either that or you know, a king salmon's great because you know you can. It's really good for raw preparation. It has a, a ton of, of, of rich fattiness. Um, but it's it's that feeling, you know, as a chef, you know, when you walk through a fish market or when you, you know, when the, uh, you know, your fishmonger shows up at the door with this, you know, beautiful, fresh, whole fish. And it's like, I mean, it's a connection that, you know, fishermen have to their fish and chefs have to their fish that I think we all try to bring together for the, for our guests and consumers to really understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. That is the food movement is that it's a passion. And if you're uh, passionate about the product that, you know, I'm cooking or you're passionate about the lifestyle that you live and the, uh, in the area that you do it, um, you know, we can all uh, really affect some big change, and mm-hmm. and and I mean, this this mine is a, obviously a huge, enormous, ridiculous project with a lot of money behind it, and it's going to take, I think, you know, the consumer and the fisherman and the chef, and you know, all of us to really, you know, affect some change and make a difference. Oh, good lord! You know, it's amazing. Most of this American salmon is is sent to Asia and Europe. And now there's a growing market for Bristol Bay sockeye here in the U.S. where consumers, you know, are becoming more savvy about their salmon. And, you know, also hopefully realizing how important a moment can be, like a moment where you're tasting salmon, like a firework is amazing. And you look at it and everyone in the world is staring at that firework, even though it just lasts for a few seconds. And yet those are the things people remember. And, um, you know, hopefully people will start spending their money on some short term pleasures rather than always long term things that they never really see the effect of anyway. Well, very, very interesting. And one last thing I wanted to mention, it's funny how there's this ragtag group of fishermen, and yet there's also the highest freezing technologies at these freezers <laughs> right by the water. You know, it's like high and low culture and technology. By the way, what technology do you use to fish and do most of these people use? Is it nets? Is it, uh, is there any bottom trawlers there? I mean, how does it work? In, in Bristol Bay, at least, uh, for the salmon fishery, it's all uh, gill nets, and the, the depth of them is uh, governed by law. They can only be 12 feet deep, uh, two fathom. Um, and then the longest uh, length is uh, 600 feet uh, of net. And it's all by hand. It's okay. put out by hand, drawn in by hand. And do you never answer the question? Do you guys argue? I mean, are there any... Uh, do you want to hammer into anybody who's probably not listening anyway? You can say anything you want. <laughs> uh, set netters and drift netters, the two... Um, principal commercial fishing, I guess the two uh, uh, commercial fisher folk in uh, Bristol Bay. There's lots of uh, um, oceanic arguing and shouting and um, 
metal uh, implement waving at <laughs> Pretty fun. Why? Because they're going on your... I once remembered, I worked with a salmon guy once. We sold their salmon at Heritage Foods and they would place their boat right next to this reef and they were eight in a row and sometimes all the salmon would just come to one boat and the other guys would get nothing because they were like 20 feet off. I mean, is that kind of the... You see the salmon and you put your boat a little too close to that guy's because he's making a killing? That's exactly it. Yeah, they the fish, if they... Um they do choose very particular little paths and if you uh as a drift fisherman particularly if you capture a little path where they're on then you you really want to vigorously uh protect your little uh, fishing area you've got there now before we cut, cut to the last break and then we're going to cut a very interesting segment let's go to the spiritual and uh superstition and all that how do you read your waters and uh whose gut is it or do you view, use technology to try to guess where those particular path lines are going to run yeah boy it's really it is a it's a mix of of everything there's lots of superstition which is the funnest part always uh, you, know, you uh, capture your first five fish this season you uh let them go alive and watch where they go <laughs> oh, really? you, uh, yeah you uh stand out at uh, low water and look to see is there a new cut bank here that i didn't see last year because maybe they'll be right in here and then i guess the high technology um which is now um kind of changing in Bristol Bay, but sometimes people on larger boats hire up small planes, little single-engine planes to look over to see if they can see dark shadows where a fish school might be. Wow. And are you always uh, going to the same exact spot? For the kind of fishing that I do, uh, set netting, I'm always returning to the same spot exactly, like within uh, 50 feet of, of, of for. The family's been fishing this one little uh, plot for, I guess, 60-some years now. And so. is the grass greener on the other side? Do you wish you were 50 feet over, or do you have a good, solid little run? My my grandfather, he uh, he happened to choose really well. He uh, um, grouped uh, my cousins and I, were the generations now, fishing on both sides of a, of a tidal creek that is a, just a, a beautiful producer of fish. In fact, actually, that's why we're fighting drift fishermen, because they're always trying to kind of skim into our little uh, creek there, so... Very interesting. I'd love to do a whole show on that. You know, superstition and gut and which guy makes the call and who's right most of the time. Because um, usually it's three or four guys in a boat, right? Mm-hmm. And and in your family as well, Chris? Three yes, or four? Yes, sir. Yep. So uh, we're going to take a break and talk about, I love this outline, what's ahead, Obama's wild salmon legacy. All right, we're going to come right back and close out with some forward-thinking initiatives. Uh, we are back. So, uh, we are talking about the possible opening of a horrible mine in Bristol Bay that will almost surely, definitely, negatively affect the world's last truly wild food source. Um, we have an awesome panel. Um, you know, I really recommend people tell their friends to download this segment, um, you know, this edition of the main course, because it's really got all the arguments all in one 40 minute span. So, we're talking about protection under the Clean Water Act, Obama's legacy. Um, You know, I'll ask this to you, Michelle. The watershed's assessment is looking for the answer to two things. 
What are those two things? Yeah, so about a year ago, the Environmental Protection Agency initiated a, water, initiated a watershed assessment of Bristol Bay, and, and this was partly in response to the request by Bristol Bay's native community, commercial fishermen, and others um, asking the EPA to protect Bristol Bay um, and to keep the pebble mine out of Bristol Bay's most sensitive salmon habitat. So the EPA said, okay, fine, we're going to do this assessment and pull together the science and the information so we can have a better understanding of what Bristol Bay's fisheries are all about, um, what are the concerns and potential risks that mining would pose to Bristol Bay's fisheries. So they've been looking at two things over this past year. Um, one, just trying to get a baseline um, understanding for, you know, what is Bristol Bay the world-class fishery that everyone says it is? You know, what are the numbers? What is the history of, of Bristol Bay's fisheries? And how significant is that? Is this a national resource um, and treasure that deserves protection? Um, and who are the people and the communities that rely on this resource? And then the second thing they're looking at are what would be the potential impacts um, that large-scale mining activity could have on Bristol Bay's communities and fisheries. Um, so they've been pulling together this information um, and actually in, well, it's April today. So, you know, sometime in this next month or so, we expect to see a draft watershed assessment Um after that assessment comes out, you know, there would be some sort of public comment period, you know, and then a, a draft watershed assessment or a final, sorry, watershed assessment would, would be released later in the year. You know, at that point, I think that's when we would really like to see the EPA come out with a decision on, you know, what it's going to do in Bristol Bay. I mean, it's got the authority. You know, this is the EPA's job to protect places like Bristol Bay. And if, I mean, if we can't protect Bristol Bay and use things like the Clean Water Act in places like Bristol Bay, I don't, I don't know a place that deserves it any more than Bristol Bay. I mean, this is why we have things like the Clean, Clean Water Act. And Elizabeth, tell me about this section 404C kind of presents Americans with a certain opportunity, right? I mean, how... It does. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's this really interesting part of the Clean Water Act um, and that allows the EPA to come in and block, sort of veto a permit um, that the Pebble Partnership or any mining company would need to, um, t in order to use dredge and fill activity in certain areas. And so in this case, you know, the EPA would block the dredge and fill permit because of negative impacts that the dredge and fill activity would have on the water, on the fisheries, on recreation areas, all of that, um, which, you know, we believe strongly that, you know, a mine like the Pebble Mine um, in its location and with its size, it, I mean, it's, <laughs> it seems very clear to all of us that there would be negative impacts on the water, on the local ecosystem and on the salmon. Now, um, it's interesting. It's not a political decision, right? I mean, this should be a right or wrong that cuts across everybody. But um, this is a stupid question, maybe. But the EPA, is that a political group? I mean, does that change, like, whether there's a Republican administration or a Democrat one? Is it like the Supreme Court? Like, who are these people? Yeah, so the EPA, um, the current EPA administrator is Lisa Jackson, and she was appointed by Obama. So in some ways, you could say it's it's... It's all political. I, I mean, I think that's the sometimes unfortunate thing is we want the science to guide decision makers um, and agencies, but it's it's politics. Um, you know, I, I think, though, the EPA has done, you know, in general, though, the EPA's job is to protect the American people, though. I mean, they are working for us and to protect us and our clean water and, you know, food sources like Bristol Bay salmon. So it's you know, I think we'd like to think it's not political, but it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. I mean, wow, it's uh, it's so interesting. I mean, I always think about Obama. I always think it's that second administration that all those things happen. You know, there's going to be a big election this year because you get a lot of power for stuff like this if, uh, you know, you've gotten the imprimatur of the American people to serve another four years. Um, certainly in our way, you know, we'll present both sides of the story, but we're always, you know, whoever gives the best... Uh, best offers for helping the world that's who we uh that's who we 
you know, stand behind at HRN. So uh, the seafood marketplace is taking action. Michael, tell us about how, you know, concretely uh, that action is, you know, uniting this story with, you know, Fatty Q uh, on uh Carmine Street, you know? We're working on a whole bunch of different projects, but the thing that I just wanted to mention is that the political thing that frightens me is the Pebble Mine Consortium claim that they're going to extract something like $400 billion worth of metals from there. And when you're talking about those kind of dollars, political forces come into play that make it difficult to have reality prevail. And it, uh, it just really frightens me. So I think it's it's that important an issue. Hmm. But what we're trying to do is try to do something. And we started earlier this year to work with the folks at, at Save Bristol Bay, okay. our friends at Chef's Collaborative, and we're reaching out to, uh, to the chef community, okay. which we think is a very powerful voice. Uh, the uh, chefs have become more and more the important spokesmen or gatekeepers for a lot of the opinions of things that happen especially around food sourcing and uh we want to enlist the chef community to help get the word out and apply political pressure to the folks who are going to make these critical decisions well heritage foods would love to circulate a letter uh you know that all our chefs sign i mean it'd be interesting powerful Ten thousand chefs mm-hmm. across the country all signing a single document you know uh from iron chefs all the way down to guys you know in louisville kentucky that are opening a hot dog stand like that would be a powerful message it's kind that's, of what you're doing that's, yep. that's- that's great stuff, and uh, we, you and I will actually talk about this yeah, okay, afterwards. <laughs> so now, uh, what uh, can people do? Uh, you know, uh, there is uh, sign the petition to President Obama at savebristolbay.org. Yep. Yeah, so we, you know, over the last year or so, we've been asking people to write their U.S. senators, which is, a, you know, we, I certainly encourage people to do that now. You know, tell your U.S. senators that this is an issue you care about and want to see them stand behind Bristol Bay. But we're really starting to shift that focus now to Obama. I mean, over the next six months, as the EPA does this watershed assessment, and when they release that, it's just really time to focus on the administration. And and encourage them, take advantage of this opportunity. Um, you know, this is about American jobs, American food, America's natural resources and treasures. And these are foreign mining companies that want to put that at risk. So, you know, I said before, yeah, it's political, but at the same time, it, this is this is American, you know, and this is standing behind what we have. So it's getting that message to Obama and um, providing the support that he and the EPA and other leaders need. Um, so, you know, it's a really easy thing to do. Sends a clear message. The other thing I mentioned before is eat Bristol Bay salmon. And, you know, for the chefs out there, you know, contact us. We'll help you guys get Bristol Bay salmon that you can share. And, you can, you know, through your menu, through your restaurant, you can create an experience for your guests. And that's the connection, I think, for, you know, just the day-to-day, you know, all of us just normal Americans. It's through our forks and through eating Bristol Bay salmon. I think that allows us to all connect to this place. Um, you know, and the other thing people can do is... Stay connected to us. Um, become our friend on Facebook. Save Bristol Bay's got a Facebook page. We're on Twitter. Um, that's really the best way to stay up to speed on what's happening and what you can do. I mean, it's it's you know we're here to to help educate and and engage as many people as we can. So stay connected to us, and and we'll be sure you know what what's going on log on to the heritage radio website today's show the main course you get all the links and stuff get active tell your kids about it everything so um well this has been a fantastic show michael i want to thank you so much for for organizing it as a as a farewell i i think we should do a round table of fun salmon facts just real headlines so mine is i'll start then we'll go to you um one way to know if someone was born in the u.s or not is how they say salmon Foreigners pronounce the L, salmon. So you're just like, what is this? They're like salmon. I'm like, enough said. You know, you are not from here. Um, it's like that one word that'll always get someone. So that's a kind of cultural uh, rule, but it's true. It works all the time. Chris, what's your favoriteest salmon fact? Favorite fun salmon fact? Uh, that belly uh, salmon bellies are delicious. I don't know if that's it's not a secret fact, but uh, the uh, part that's um, 
difficult to, to present to the commercial market. Salmon bellies are delicious. And also uh, the skeins of eggs that come from female salmon are really delicious if you poach them whole and have them on pilot bread. <laughs> All right. Very nice. Elizabeth? That's hard to follow. Um, I think for me, the number that is maybe most striking, I don't know if it's fun, but it gets me riled up, is, uh, you know, we import a tremendous amount of farmed Atlantic salmon here in the U.S., and I think it's around 80% of the salmon that we eat here in the U.S., and salmon's one of the top three seafood consumed. Um, 80% is is farmed Atlantic salmon. And when we have places like Bristol Bay, um, you know, and we're exporting all that to Asia and Europe, I guess I would just love to see more of that staying here in the U.S. and supporting our local fishermen, our American fishermen, and, you know, eating wild. There's there's no reason we need to export this perfect wild food just to import some farmed... That is absurd. ...pathetic thing. Uh, Michael? I want to follow up on Elizabeth. Um, I think it's crazy that we have the incredible resource of the Bristol Bay salmon run, and we do eat 80% farm salmon, we want to be able to uh, set up systems to allow people to enjoy beautiful, delicious, wild sockeye salmon mm-hmm. year-round. And this summer, when the when the things get crazy for Christopher up at, uh, up at Graveyard Point, we want to make sure that the fresh product is able to reach the market mm-hmm. uh, during that time and let chefs spread the word of how important this issue is. And I remember that you, people can do a search for your name on our website, and yeah. there was that other fascinating story you told me that the lar- world's largest food supply are these kind of anchovies that come from the Antarctic, yep. and they could feed millions of people, and instead most of that is mm. going to feed farm salmon. That's exactly right, the anchovita off of uh, off of the humble. That's curve. a whole, talk a whole about a possible story, solution there. Absolutely. God. Corwin, anything uh, from the culinary world (laughs) um yeah i mean uh i mean i think that you know you both raised probably one of the most important points you know it's that uh you know we should be eating more wild salmon and you know when you eat wild salmon don't forget to use the whole thing i mean salmon skin is is probably the most delicious thing ever um and also the bones you know there's there's kind of that that stigma that you can't use salmon bones to make broth but um i mean that really just comes from a, a a very closed-minded, you know, perspective. It's, you know, just find a way to use it. You know, what about it's, the head? I mean, you eat the head. You eat the collar. I mean, fish have cheeks. I mean, this is this is a, this is a, this is a great animal. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing in this uh, in, in this industry that you can't use from uh, head to tail or nose to tail. Very interesting. So, so get on board. No pun intended. And uh, you know, um, support this issue. Thank you so much, everybody, for being on. You guys are really unbelievable. I hope our listeners follow you guys. Jack, great job. Uh, and we'll be back uh, next week. Katie Kiefer is doing her show, uh, Straight No Chaser, in 10 minutes. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.